Welcome to the American Exception Podcast. I'm Aaron Good. In the wake of Tucker Carlson's bizarre but strangely pretty good reporting on the JFK case, I am talking again with our friend James Diagenio. He is the screenwriter and co-creator of Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass and the four-hour cut of the film JFK Destiny Betrayed. That title comes from Diagenio's book Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. First published in 1992, with a second edition released by Skyhorse in 2013. The Eugenio runs the Kennedys and King website, a fantastic resource featuring essays and book reviews and coverage of the latest developments pertaining to JFK and the other major political assassinations of the 1960s. In 2018, Jim published The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, a comprehensive dismantling of the lone nut theory put forward in Reclaiming History, a book nominally authored by Vincent Bugliosi. Jim's book is an excellent standalone work on the JFK case. In addition to functioning as a one-man publicity team for JFK Justice, DiGenio has made regular appearances on Leno Sanic's Black Op Radio podcast for more than a decade. Jim Diagenio, it's great to have you back on. So, since we last spoke, there have been strange developments, very strange, things I wouldn't have guessed. Um, specifically, the Tucker Carlson story. And uh, what do you make of the fact that Tucker Carlson uh, put out one of the best JFK segments that I've seen on the news in my ever? And, and, and what do we make? What do you make of this? Well, I have I I agree with you. It's it was certainly one of the most daring, one of the most bold, one of the most honest um, segments on TV that I have seen, going all the way back to Geraldo Rivera showing the Zapruder film, okay, on television back in 1975, you know, and even Robert Kennedy Jr. commented on. You know, uh, but even even Geraldo Rivera back then did not do go as far as uh, as Tucker Carlson did. So this was really, really uh, kind of uh, gracing, you know. Uh, and I I give him a lot of credit for this. You know, it's uh, it's not easy to buck up against the entire establishment on an issue like this. All right, as many people can tell you. So yeah. what what remains to be seen is what is really in the rest of these documents. Okay. And as we know, evidently the CIA and the FBI and the state, they don't want to reveal them. And and I'm really glad I, I, I got to do your show this morning because one of the things that I've been trying to say. And I think is very important is that when Jeff Morley says that this is not what it appears to be, he's exactly right. Because unlike what the see that this is what happens: Nair releases the documents, the MSM says, "Wow, 
the, they've now let loose of a thousand pages. Well, what they don't, because nobody reads them, you know, for these big outfits, okay? So what they don't know is that many, many of these documents are still in redacted form, all right? And to give you a couple of examples, there's a, a letter from Schlesinger to JFK about the attempt to reorganize the CIA. Well, that's about a 14-page letter, and there's still about a page and a half of that that is whited out. Another example, James O'Connell worked for the CIA at the time that the CIA mafia plots against Castro were being formulated. He gave about a 70-page interview to the church committee. There's about five pages of that that are still in redacted form. And I can go on and on, all right? But see, in my opinion, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, you know, this is not just a violation of the spirit of the law. It's a violation of the letter of the law. Because as you know, all this stuff was supposed to be out there in 2017, all right? That's what the JFK Act said. Well, Trump backed out of it. He backed out of it again twice. Biden only released 1,400 pages last year. And it looked like Biden was willing to go ahead and do the same thing this year. Now, the JFK Act says that if you are going to withhold documents past 2017, the president must issue a unclassified summary as to why. And that's what's not happening. So in other words, like I said, it's breaking both the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And it's, it's really uh, that the MSM doesn't call, call this out is, I think, very discouraging, right? Um, because it, you know, it tends to tell me that, as usual, they're just gliding along uh, the surface. Now, I'm sure you're aware that there's an alternative to this going on in Northern California, right? No, not exactly. What do you uh, what, the, go the ahead? Court, explain. The court case. Okay. The court case. All right. The Mary Farrell Foundation <clears throat> is filing a lawsuit. Oh, right. I know. About, yeah, okay. right. I understand that one. That's the one you're referring yeah. to. Okay. I didn't realize they were based in North Carolina or uh, Northern California. Well, the, the, law, the lawsuit is in Northern California. Okay. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> because. <clears throat> Evidently, they felt they could get a better judge out there, all right? And so this lawsuit is going to try and force Biden's hand on this issue, all right? So that is proceeding. I, I think there's going to be a hearing in March, all right, <clears throat> on this case. So I think it's Bill Simpich and Larry Schnapp are going ahead and proceeding with the lawsuit. So this should be very, uh, very interesting as to what the results of that were. But isn't that terrible that you actually have to sue the president and the National Archives? I mean, I, I, I somebody posted on Twitter the other day a story, uh, which I didn't know uh, about, an ang an, a Biden angle, basically, which seems so perfect. Like he's kind of the second coming of Gerald Ford in a, in a way. 
um, in that he was the guy who, uh, as a congressman, helped to work to derail uh, Ted Sorensen's nomination to be director of central intelligence, that he was the person that he had somehow made it, gotten information or something to the effect that Sorensen had revealed some classified information. Maybe it was when he helped to ghostwrite uh, posthumously 13 days, or it was something like that. It might not have been that specifically, but it was like some kind of minor technicality over classified information. And so they used that to crush his CIA, you know, director nomination, which is like, I mean, it's amazing because, you know, the CIA leaks classified information all the time uh, when they want to. And I mean, so, but I, this is in a longer way of saying, I think Biden is just a guy who has gotten where he's gotten purely by serving the establishment. It's not that he's so clever or charismatic or anything. So I don't have high hopes for him. Well, I'm actually hoping somebody will run against him. Okay. I hope maybe these uh, documents that he was caught with, you know, at two different locations, you know, maybe this will uh, encourage somebody like Gavin Newsom or Elizabeth Warren to run against him. Although I kind of doubt it. I mean, when um, when Jeff Morley had that press conference and he made reference to documents that he believes will show what Oswald that Oswald was being part of an operation, do you have any insight into what specifically that might be referring to? Because the time yes, frame what, what, people what have speculated is, about, but it's hard to say. What what the, what Jeff was referring to is the fact that. NARA is still withholding uh, a a large set of documents on George Ioannidis, all right? And George Ioannidis, of course, was the CIA liaison in New Orleans to uh, the Cuban exiles there, including the DRE, all right? What he's talking about is that Ioannidis had been cleared for a special intelligence briefing, okay? And I think this was in June, okay, of of 63. Jeff wants to see what the special intelligence was about, all right? He thinks that it was about the CIA, FBI, campaign against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Now, if that's true, it's it's really, really interesting because of what Oswald is going to be doing in New Orleans. The other option is that it might be about Mexico City. Now, if it's about Mexico City, it's even more incriminating because Oswald hasn't even planned to go there yet. All right. So he wants to see what, and of course, the CIA doesn't want to doesn't want to uh, declassify those documents. See, the, this whole story about Jelanides, I'm sure you're aware of it. it. It goes all the way back to the House Select Committee. Yeah, he was the, he, he was their helpful, friendly uh, liaison to the to the agency. Right, because he lied about what he was doing in 1963. All right, and so. By not revealing that, that's how he got on to the committee, right? And so once he got onto the committee, Dan Hardway told me 
that he began to obstruct him and Eddie Lopez, uh, who were working on their report on Oswald, uh, the CIA in Mexico City. All right. And after that, of course, there was the exposure of Joannides because Jeff told, when Jeff discovered these documents about him and the DRE, he told Blakey, and Blakey was shocked. All right. So then there was the encounter with the ARB. The ARB should have declassified every single Joannides document there was. But they, but they told the ARB that all they had was a personnel file on Joannides. In other words, things like, you know, his paychecks and, you know, his vacations and all this stuff, okay? Well, that ended up not being the whole story, all right? So, in other words, they lied to the House Select Committee. They lied to the ARB, all right? And then when Jeff tried to get the documents by court action, what happened? They tied him up in court for something like seven years, all right? And then finally, when Brett Kavanaugh was going to be appointed to the Supreme Court, what happens? All right, Brett Kavanaugh reverses the precedent, votes against Jeff's case, and Jeff loses the case. All right, so we couldn't get them through court action either. All right, and then, of course, Brett Kavanaugh, a week later, gets confirmed, you know, by the Senate to go on the Supreme Court. So this is very, very interesting, okay, as to the links the CIA will go to to not go ahead and let let loose on those documents. So I, I have a question about this. And maybe you're you're one of the only people I could probably ask about this because you're you know, know the minutiae so well. Are these whether it was a Mexico City thing or a New Orleans thing, perhaps they're not mutually exclusive? I mean, wasn't part of what happened in Mexico City I mean, isn't there a Richard Case Nigel fair play well, well, for Cuba well, angle of, involving this? Part of what John Newman has written about, for example, is that the ultimate denouement uh, was twofold in the sense that Oswald became the uh, mirage, the fall guy, but also it resulted in the destruction of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, okay, which was on the ropes already because of the attacks by the CIA and FBI. But the but when when Oswald came out, because see, as Jeff so skillfully demonstrated in that press conference, what was used against Oswald the first day was these films and pictures of him in New Orleans, leafleting these documents as a representative of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. So if you're going to do that in public and then on the day of the assassination, your representative is there on TV, you know, leafleting, then, of course, that would spell the end of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. So as some people have said, like John Newman, this was really kind of a twofer that they got out of uh, pinning the assassination on Oswald. 
it, it was the ultimate success of the campaign against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and also a way to uh, find a fall guy for the JFK assassin. So, yeah, you're correct on that. That would be a double-edged sword. Well, spe- 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 uh, specifically, though, didn't um, Richard Case Nagel say, didn't he have Fair Play for Cuba literature with him along with Oswald related material. And he made some reference to obtaining something like that in Mexico city. Uh, I mean, it's a stri- it's a convoluted story, but I seem to recall something like that, that and I know that it's disputed whether Oswald was even in Mexico city, but could he have been doing some sort of Cuba? Could it have been somehow related to that? If there was, if Oswald or an Oswald double was in Mexico city, I mean, could it have been part of that same operation with the Fair Play for Cuba committee? If my memory about Nigel's, uh, his the evidence around Nigel, if that's correct, yeah, well, that that is that is right. That he did have those things in his car when he was arrested in El Paso, okay, uh, for shooting up a bank. All right, and then he did claim that he had been to Mexico City earlier with Oswald, okay? Um, so, yes, that, I mean, Nigel, Nigel was really uh, in deep with Lee Harvey Oswald, okay? And, but they, no one's ever been able to confirm whether or not Oswald actually did go to Mexico City, as Nigel said earlier. Then he, I, I believe the dates, the official dates, I think are something like September 27th, okay, to something like October 2nd, okay, or maybe the 3rd. Nagel predates that a little bit, okay? I think he puts it at September the 24th, okay? Now, of course, as you just said, this is a quandary. Because many people, including me, don't think Oswald went to Mexico City from September 27th to October the 2nd. All right. And and the, we, that's a whole, we could do a two-hour thing on whether or not Oswald was in Mexico City when the Warren Commission says he was. As you know, the House Select Committee on Assassinations worked on a 350-page report Okay, Oswald, the CIA in Mexico City by Ed Lopez and Dan Hardway, which essentially came to the conclusion that Oswald was impersonated in Mexico City at both the Cuban and the Soviet uh, consulates. He still he still could have been there, but it does seem that there's a strong, uh, uh, basically conclusive amount of evidence that he was impersonated at some points. Yes. And then I, I, well. I'll go you one further. I think it's very problematic that he ever went to Mexico City. Right. All right. Because there's been some new research on this by a guy named David Josephs that makes the argument that if Oswald went to Mexico City, he didn't do it the way that the Warren Commission said he did. All right. Uh, and, at least it conflicts with the Sylvia Odio timeline where she right, saw. Right, and that And that's right. based upon seeing Oswald. And recognizing his face and such, right? Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up because see this, the whole quandary that the Warren Commission was left with 
uh, in their final days. And they're very open about this. You know, was Oswald at Sylvia Odio's door? Because if he was at Sylvia Odio's door, that creates a problem for us putting him on a bus to Mexico City. All right. And so that's when they go to J. Edgar Hoover and they essentially tell him, look, Silviodio's claims must be proved or disproved. Okay. And you notice they put disproved last for emphasis. Okay. And so uh, he set about disproving them. And Wesley Liebler went about uh, trying to scare her out of her story. Wesley Lieber was one of the lawyers on the commission who took her deposition. And then he tried to seduce her in his hotel room uh, afterwards so he could claim that she was a loose woman of loose morals, et cetera, and she couldn't be trusted. All right. Well, maybe we should, uh, your listeners, maybe we should back up a minute, okay? Silvio Odio was a Cuban exile who came from a wealthy family. And when she came to the United States, she do, she got divorced from her husband, okay, and was having some emotional problems about this, all right? But she was a representative of the Cuban exile group called Jure, all right? Jure was a liberal group led by Manuela Rey, who was one of JFK's favorites, okay, uh, but one of Howard, Howard Hunt's, Howard Hunt detested him. Because he he called Manuel O'Ray, uh, this is Castroism without Castro. All right, which is uh, about and, which is about like when they call Obama a communist, right? I mean, <laughs> all right, and so and so, what happened was that Hunt, who was organizing the Cuban exiles to prepare a junta to take over once the Bay of Pigs succeeded, he more or less you know, held Manuel O'Reilly in detention during the Bay of Pigs operation, all right? Because he didn't want him to be part of this alleged new government that was going to take over uh, after Castro fell, which, of course, he did not, all right? So here comes 1963, and around seven weeks before the assassination, three men appear at Silvia Odio's door. Two of them looked like her to be Cuban exiles, and one was a Caucasian, right? And they started asking her questions, you know, about, uh, you know, securing funding, et cetera, okay, about her father who was a prisoner in the Isle of Pines, all right? But then the important thing about this story is this, that a couple days later, one of these exiles calls up Silviodio and he says words of the effect. He thanks her for the help that she tried to give him. And then he goes, you know, that gringo we were with, he said we should have gotten rid of Kennedy a long time ago, you know, for what he did at the Bay of Pigs. He says he didn't think we have the uh, the guts to go ahead and do it. Now, remember, this is seven weeks before the assassination. On the day of the assassination, 
when Sylvia Odio, like millions of other people, sees Oswald's face, she fainted. Okay? They had to take her to the hospital. So her sister comes down, and her sister was there that night. Okay? And she's like almost breathless. That's him. That's the guy who was at my door. All right. And then the sister who answered the door said, you're right. It is him. Okay. So this, of course, was almost radioactive. Okay. Because how much more clear can you be that the Cuban exiles were trying to set up Oswald seven weeks before the assassination? So the question then became, was Oswald at Sylvia Odio's door or was Oswald on a bus from Houston to Nuevo Laredo at the time? All right. Clearly, clearly, the Warren Commission, the FBI, did not want him at Sylvia Odio's door. So they made up this excuse that uh, it was really Lorraine Hall, Lawrence Howard and William Seymour. Who were really, except William Seymour is in no way a dead ringer for Oswald. And Silvio Odio said that was either Oswald or a dead ringer for him. Okay. You know, so this became the, this became a very serious problem. And people like Sylvia Marr, uh, who was one of the most distinguished first generation critics, she really went after the FBI, you know for trying to cover up the fact that Sylvia Odia was a very credible witness, you know. And, and in fact, she called that part of her book, which is towards the end, if I recall, all right, she called that part of her, she, she has a whole long chapter called No Conspiracy, with a question mark after it, in which she selects certain parts of the Warren Commission testimony that anybody could have read, which would indicate just that, that there was a conspiracy. And then she topped it off with about five pages on the Odeo incident, which she subheaded as the proof of the plot. Okay. All right. So this, so, so this became a kind of bête noir for anybody who was trying to defend the commission was the whole Sylvia Odeo story. Now, of course, today, it's not necessarily true that Oswald has to be one place or the other, because many people, including myself, believe it's very problematic that Oswald went to Mexico City. All right. So it's not so cut and dried as it was back then. All right. And I, we, like I said, we can go into Mexico City for two hours. I don't think you want to spend that much time on something like that. Right. Okay. It's just fascinating yeah. because that whole time period and even the times in Dallas, it's like there's a lot of problematic evidence which is hard which you really can't explain unless there are people trying to establish that Oswald is this you know dangerous assassin i mean the cuz there're all there's the the Odeo incident but there's there are also incidents in Dallas where there's yes. some Oswald looking person who is like acting in a way so so it's like they they maybe they compartmentalized it so much that you had different people working to establish sort of like foreshadowing of this event that could be looked at after the fact. But then because they were so compartmentalized, they didn't always know what the other side was doing, you know, what the other people were doing. 
otherwise, it's hard to make sense of like the, what he's what he's supposedly doing in Mexico City. This Odeo incident, these incidents in Dallas where somebody who can drive a car is talking about you know saying very incriminating things that that really well, draw let's attention. Not the, let's not forget the firing range. Okay, there's also a guy named Oswald. The firing range. The, the what you're talking about there was so fascinating these multiple impersonations of Oswald in the weeks up to the assassination that Richard Popkin, a professor, wrote a whole book about it, I think in 1968, called The Second Oswald, in which he went ahead and described all of these instances in which somebody said that a guy named Oswald or who looked like Oswald was in a very compromising situation. Well, let's let's just take an example of three of them. You got the Odeo incident where the Cuban exile calls her back and says he thinks we should have gotten rid of JFK a long time ago. You've got the firing range incident where this guy is actually firing at a different target. Okay, the firing range. <laughs> and the guy starts yelling at him, and the guy says words to the effect, oh, sorry, I thought I was shooting at that darn Kennedy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That just seems like a bad movie script or something. (laughs) And then there's the case where uh, he goes to, I think, a Ford Mercury dealership, test drives a car at about 80 miles an hour, okay, and says, I'm going to be coming into some money soon. That's why I want. Now, come on. (laughs) You put those three together. I mean, how can it be any worse than that? Okay. You know, but yet that is what. The these and I and you know, I kind of agree with you. I believe it was so compartmentalized that various elements didn't know what the other one was doing, you know, and that's why it ended up being this smorgasbord, okay, of impersonations that Richard Popkin described so well. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. the The target thing is just kind of comical. I mean, I don't, I'm not a a, a Texan anthropologist, but. I just imagine that shooting somebody else's target in Texas is like, that's just not done. That's like, you got to have a duel if you do something like that, like a shootout on the street. It's just like bad, very bad form, according to Texas customs. Right. But uh, I mean, it's, it really is, it's, it really is amazing that, that it's, uh, it's so over the top where it's like, this points to unmistakably, but as does the whole New Orleans caper where, he is working out of a right winger, right winger's office, who works for like the anti, uh, anti communist League of the Caribbean, like ultra right winger right. anti communist, and he's passing out Cuba pamphlets. And then he gets into a scuffle with some more CIA backed people, and then goes on a CIA radio station and discredits this pro Castro organization. And then you find out later that the CIA was running anti Fair Play for Cuba committee operations right. domestically involving James McCord even and, and David Phillips. <laughs> right. And it's so And then the FBI side was Deke Deloach. Yeah. All right. He was running it there. I do me correctly. WDSU wasn't really a CIA station, but it was let's make no error about it. It was very sympathetic uh to what the government wanted them to do. I was referring and to Inca actually, the Inca, oh, Inca. thing. Okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. Not not the station well, no, but no, the that's... Now that's okay. No, you're absolutely correct there. Okay, <laughs> Inca was very much in bed with the CIA. There's, there's no doubt about that. And they're the one who put out the tape, the 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 record album, 
Yeah. But after, I think it was called Portrait in Red. Right. And within like a week of the assassination. All right. And that was with uh, Ed Butler and Carlos Bringier. And it was sponsored by Alton Oxen. Okay. A very famous uh, doctor down in New Orleans who was in bed with the Pentagon and the CIA. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Aaron, you know, when, when you talk about these things, you know, uh, that came out afterwards, you know, it, it just seems, you know, how on earth could anybody miss this? You know, that, 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 that becomes the question. But here we are 60 years later, and there's still 14,000 pages that have yet to be declassified. So what on earth could they possibly be hiding 60 years after the fact? But I'll tell you this, though. I'll tell you this. Tucker Carlson might have started something because there were three or four other outlets that, and isn't this so interesting? They're, they were on the right. Okay. Now, it is true that uh, Joe Scarborough, I shouldn't sort of change him, but he did do a show of, that did feature some of these. But these other people that uh, echoed what, what Carlson was saying we're more or less on the right. You know, the, and, and, you know, some people say, and I've argued with these people, that how can you possibly, you know, appreciate Tucker Carlson? You know, well, look, you know, the way I look at this, I have never believed that this should have been a right-left issue. Okay? I've never believed that. I, I've always believed that Americans of any persuasion should be interested in what happened in 1963 because it was an abduction in broad daylight of what the country is supposed to be, which is a republic, okay? You know, a democratically elected representatives of the people. And when you do something like what happened there in Dealey Plaza, you make a joke about whether or not the United States is a republic, you know? And so I've always thought that people of diverse uh, political persuasions could agree on something like this, you know. And and so if Tucker Carlson at Fox decides to go ahead and uh, do an eight-minute segment that has an impact, then that's that's all right with me. You know, that's all right with me. You know, as 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 long as. Uh, you know, the information he has is correct. And by the way, I thought that was very interesting the way he brought up Jocelyn West. The, uh, the oh, Jolly and, Jolly and West, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the CIA doctor who went in to treat Ruby, okay, after, the, after he had murdered Oswald. You know, that's something that not very many people know about. You know, so I thought that was a very pungent kind of bit of information that, that uh, he put there before the public. And, you know, he gets 3.4 million viewers, all right? So, therefore, you know, a lot of people saw this, you know, and that, that's a heck of a lot better than, you know, than uh, what we have going, you know, on, on our side. And, and the saving grace, of course, is that I think the lawsuit did get some publicity. There were many outlets who talked about that lawsuit. All right. And so that might be interesting to see what happens there and if the media follows it up again, because that's another thing that should not be a right left issue. You know, secrecy in government 
you know, should be, everybody should be concerned about that. You have to be so far on the right if, to try to defend this apparent right-wing coup d'etat and cover-up uh, that it, it's, I mean, it's telling that there there's no public right-wing figure actually trying to do it that way. It really shows what kind of state we ultimately live under in that the prevailing authority at the top of it is actually far to the right of both major political parties and really any political constituency in the United States such that it can't even honestly speak about what it does. I mean, this is this is something we should we should draw from this and we don't. Do you have any idea who the have you heard anything about who the source was that Tucker Carlson was referencing? No. I, I really wish I did. Well, so, okay. someone said something to me or sent me a message and I, I'm not, this person is not, I don't, I wouldn't say like, oh, they're, they must be correct. And they were saying like, this is what I heard from someone who works at Fox news, but this is a guy who I think is reasonably trustworthy in in all my experiences with him. He's been trustworthy, but you know, I'm not saying I can confirm this at all. So this is just what I heard. Uh, they said it was Donald Trump. And uh, I think that's, that's what he said. He said that he knows someone at Fox who, who know who who knows somehow that it was actually Donald Trump. I'm not saying that that is the case, only throwing it out there as a possibility. And the one thing that makes me think not, you know, sort of uh reject or, or dismiss this out of hand or just think it's too uh, wacky is the actual phrasing that they used in the show because he he says we asked uh we asked this person directly did the CIA have a hand in the murder of John Kennedy at Amer- an American president? And here's the reply we received verbatim, quote, the answer is yes, I believe they were involved. It's a whole different country from what we thought. It's all fake. That last part where he says it's all fake, (laughs) that does not seem like a high level CIA officer who would have access to all this information, nor does it seem like a National Archives uh, person, you know, someone who would have a position in the bureaucracy. But it sounds a lot. It does sound like what Trump would say, uh, but I don't know. No, you, know, you know, now that I think of it, you're you're you might be onto something there. OK, you're right. That does sound more like what Trump would say than some CIA veteran who's been through the archives for years on end, you know. And also, would, would, a, would a guy, would a, would a CIA veteran, would a CIA veteran go, it's a whole different country from what we thought it was, as if he had some pristine view of America up until then? Uh-huh. Right. Right. So I mean, Wait, and, but, and and Nixon did similar things. Nixon tried to get JFK documents to use against the CIA because he knew the yeah. CIA was out to get him. I mean, it, we we know that now, and that's only become really uh, well established in the, in the last couple of years. There was that previous smoking gun tape with the Bay of Pigs thing and all that, which was fascinating. But that thing that the the one conversation that Morley posted on JFK facts, and I put it in American Exception, where he's actually grilling. Helms and saying like, you know, this who shot Jack, Jack Angle, I, I need to know so I can protect the Dirty Tricks Department. You know, was it the CIA? I can help you, though, because I want to help you. But it's really something. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting. Uh, you know, the, the, the see, what a lot of people don't understand is that, I and I believe this is the case, is that all these presidents since more or less know what happened. Let, let me tell you let me tell you a story that's you'll find I think fascinating. 
When Al Gore first went to Washington, he was a congressman from Tennessee. And Bernie Fensterwald was a, a FOIA lawyer, all right, who knew the family because he was from that state also. So he told Gore, he said, look, do me a favor. On Friday before you're re getting ready to fly home, come into my office for about an hour and I'll have a set of documents out for you on the JFK case that I'd like you to read, all right? And this will not take very much of your time and you'll get home in time to see your wife and kids, et cetera. So Gore, for one year, did this. Went into the ARC offices, had a desk there. Bernie would send out these files, okay, and, and Gore would read them. And at the end of one year, Gore said, Bernie, you're right, it was a conspiracy. All right. so, so, and so this is what, you know, I, I believe most of these guys know, you know, and you'll, I'm sure you're aware that Clinton uh, told Webb Hubble that he wanted him when he first got to Washington. I want you to look into the JFK case and tell me what you think. All right. So this, this, this illusion that, Nobody in Washington understands or knows or, you know, or, or is interested in the JFK case. This is an illusion set up by the mass media. All right. Because it's pretty much, you know, contrary to that image. You know, and I've always believed that the JFK case is something that these guys know, you know, like Fletcher Prouty said. It was a warning shot, okay? You know, if you ever think of getting out of line like this guy did, okay, just remember what what happened to him, you know? So I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's fascinating. The public has always been skeptical of the Warren Commission and the leaders too. I mean, LBJ, Nixon... Uh, Gerald Ford said strange things. I've heard th I've heard things about Carter, um, and then Reagan even tried to say it was the communist plot uh, at one point, wow. which was absurd. Uh, so this is it's like the the elites and the Warren Commission members themselves were became you know opponents of the Warren Commission uh, yeah. eventually. I mean, it's uh, it, in, in, in it that something. Instance, I'm glad you brought that up. Now, in that instance, you had. Richard Russell, John Sherman Cooper, and Hale Boggs ended up turning on the Warren Commission, right? Uh, Richard Russell, and this is something we have in JFK Revisited, uh, you know, he wanted to file his dissent at the last meeting. He later found out that they had suffered him, that there really wasn't any secretary there. And there really were no minutes of that meeting left, which he said went on for hours, you know, and he fought back as well as he could against a single bullet theory. All right. Well, when Harold Weisberg alerted him to the fact that, hey, Richard, there was no stenographic record of that last meeting. He was stunned. OK, it was like, you know, a deer in the headlights. He said, what? He says, there was no record of that. So he sent his assistant 
over to the National Archives and double check on that. And he came back and said, he's right. There is no stenographic record of your protest at that final meeting. And this is when he became the first guy on the Warren Commission to turn on the Warren Commission verdict. And he was shortly followed by Hale Boggs and John Sherman Cooper. What Hale Boggs, what, what infuriated him was when he found out that Hoover had kept files on the Warren Commissioners. Okay, and he found out that these were going to be used in case they went off to reservation. All right. And so he started making some very fiery speeches on the floor of the House against what Hoover had done in handling the evidence of the Warren Commission. And then John Sherman Cooper, with a, an interview with the BBC, I think this was in 1974 or 75, uh, said words to the effect that he never bought the single bullet theory. All right. So therefore, you had three people on the Warren Commission who ended up turning against their verdict. And we also know, because we have this in JFK Revisited also, Gerald Ford, when he visited France and talked to Valerie Gustard Destain, and he talked and he asked him about this. Did you really believe that stuff that you put in the Warren Report? And he says, words to the effect, no, we always knew that it was in an organization that killed Kennedy, but we couldn't find out who it was. So that's four. So that's the majority of the Warren Commission didn't believe it. But Ford is very strange because I, I, that conversation and the way it's recounted, I mean, it, it's so – he didn't – like when – um when Russell makes statements about the Warren Commission and it's, you know, the problems with it, it's one thing, but he didn't hold a, like he didn't do, Ford didn't do what Russell did where he tried to have a meeting like, like Ford really, really sort of cinched up everything. I mean, I think that's why they made him the president later. (laughs) Because, you know, Ford, see what, what, what I, when I talk about this issue, the way I frame it is this. The Warren Commission had a Southern wing, Boggs, Cooper, and Russell. And then they had what I call the Troika, which is Dulles, McCloy, and Ford. The Southern wing wasn't really part of the Washington to New York power axis, all right? They were outside of it, you know. The other three guys, Dulles, McCloy, and Ford, were part of that whole power axis, okay? And so they were, uh, to them, what the real facts were didn't matter because they were so used to playing the game that it was second nature to them, you know, which it wasn't to those other three guys, you know. And so Ford could secretly say something, at least he thought it was secret for a while, to the prime minister of France, okay, and then go back and, you know, uh, become Mr. FBI and say, you know, oh, you know, we we did everything we could, and there were, we couldn't find it. You know that for him that was like second nature to him. You know, so that's why that's why I think it's I that's believable to me. Yeah. Oh, I I totally believe that he said it. I just think he's lying there too when he says that like oh we tried to look for this and that and like as things have come out you see that he he didn't know he didn't know such thing. Mm-hmm. 
but he it's like he felt that i mean you wonder it's worth trying to think about why he would bother lying about it i think because he maybe he knew it would he would be received as a clown if he said it was oswald you know he had to it's like he knew it was embarrassing to like actually affirm the party line and so he sort of bullshits i mean i don't know how else to characterize it it's very strange but the Stang never revealed that story till after Ford was dead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can I can understand that. Um, so a- another aspect of this recent uh, Tucker Carlson story is there's a passage here near the, near the end of his segment that I, I think is worth commenting on. I want to ask your opinion on it. <clears throat> he says, Americans have trusted their government less with every passing year since the killing of JFK. Maybe this is why. And people have known this for a long time. The people who knew would include every director of the CIA since November 63. And that list would include Obama's CIA director, John Brennan, one of the most sinister and dishonest figures in American life. Well, he's got a lot of competition there, but I digress. Uh, That list would also include, we are sad to say, our friend Mike Pompeo, who ran the CIA in the last administration. Mr. Pompeo knew this. We asked Mr. Pompeo to join us tonight. And though he rarely turns down a televised interview, he refused to come. We hope he will reconsider. So uh, have you heard anything about, since this story came out, about past DCIs being asked about this part of uh, the report? Because it seems newsworthy. I mean, shouldn't they be asked? I'm going to tell you something that I've never revealed before. And I know this from a secret letter that somehow got sent to me by a guy who was associated with the CIA, you know. There is a secret group of former DCIs and deputy DCIs. It's called the Brotherhood, okay? And it's kind of like an alumni association, okay, for the CIA. And these guys meet occasionally. And this guy who I knew about, okay, in this letter said that he knows about it because he was invited to one of their meetings. Okay, and it was about this subject, the JFK assassination. So yes, that's probably correct from what from what I know. You know, so you know, unfortunately, I I, I don't want to reveal who the guy is, but in my opinion, he was he was credible. Yeah, I mean, but why shouldn't they? I mean, you would expect them to be asked and then to deny it, but I haven't seen anything to that effect. So. That's interesting, right? Well, I mean, somebody, what I mean is like right now, somebody, you would say like New York Times called Mike Pompeo who denied it. You don't see anything like that. No, I I haven't. You're you're correct on that. I haven't seen anything like that, you know, and you would expect them, you know, but uh, evidently, you know, I think some people thought that it would just be a one day story. Okay. You know, and, but that hasn't turned out to be the case. This this story that Tucker Carlson started has some legs to it, all right? And other people have picked it up. And so, you know, you really wonder why there hasn't been a response. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I am kind of surprised that they didn't just quickly put something out where the guys just lied. Because, it's I mean, it's not like a CIA denial about anything is something that we would take seriously, but you would expect them to at least go through the motions of doing that. And they, they didn't do that. Mm -hmm. So it's very strange. I mean, I, I have 
Tucker being a right wing figure. And uh, I mean, the, the, the I consider the whole I may have a cynical view of this, but I think it's accurate. The whole mainstream media is is perhaps not riddled with CIA assets, although I'm sure there are some all over the place. But they're owned by these same entities that are so powerful that, you know, they're like the people that created the CIA in the first place. I mean, the top of corporate America and so on. Um, and so they're not, they're not, they may as well all be, if, if, if you just are trying to please the corporate board, you're basically going to report things as though you were a CIA asset to begin with. You're not going to, da- you're not going to delegitimize the system of that the U S presides over because that's the one that's made all these rich guys so rich. So I, 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 I see them all as being very, you know, not, none of them as really operating the way journalism is supposed to operate in the, in a democracy in the United States. So with Tucker, it's like, you know, his, he, his father was with voice of America, which is basically CIA propaganda network he himself was like trying to get involved with Iran Contra operations. I think he applied to be in the CIA. So, I mean, what's I, I guess it's like what's the angle here? Why is he why is he pushing this? Does he have an agenda to discredit assassination critics, or is it a way to make it a right wing type of issue so that liberals, you know, run right away like are repelled by it? I mean, do you have any other? Do you have any well, Aaron, theory yeah, on this? Uh, Maybe he's really interested in it. Yeah. You know, maybe he's generally, it's a, it's, let, let's put it this way, it's a pretty interesting topic, okay? And it's something that's, like, haunted over the American landscape. You know, like Don DeLillo said about it in Libra, on that day, those shots that rang out in Dealey Plaza broke the back of the American century, you know? So it, it's pretty a, a cataclysmic kind of event. You know, and, 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 and so I think, you know, there's people on both the right and left who are interested in it. So best case scenario is something that he's really interested in, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and by the way, he, from what I understand from my sources, uh, he is willing to let other people come on, okay, on his show. And go ahead and talk about this, all right? Although very few people, you know, have followed up on it, and I think it's because of the stigma of uh, of going on a Tucker Carlson show that's prevented other people from doing so. I I went on Fox, by the way, a guy named Waters. Okay, I don't remember his first name. Okay, um, but I went on. I did about a five minute segment. Okay, and and I talked about the fact that many of these documents have not been declassified, not really declassified. All right, you know, so I really don't have a problem with appearing on a show like that, you know, if it's about this this particular subject. All right, so I think it might be because he's just like really interested in it. I mean, I would. I that is the more optimistic thing. I'm agnostic, but tend to think that whatever Fox is doing, they're not doing it for good reasons. However, I also think that the the whole this whole spectrum of the media is so corrupt that besides Alex, something like Alex Jones, where he has committed sort of libelous and scandalous, you know, acts in the past, 
Well, I I generally feel that though the media is is corrupt pretty much top to bottom, that it's a platform that it, it, we should people should take advantage of it. Like I'd like to see somebody like say John Pilger uh, appear on any radio or on any media platform that has a big audience in the United States. I don't think it's going to somehow be decisive and lead to the kind of huge, you know, basically revolutionary changes that we need, but I don't see how it can hurt. Uh, but other, you know, some people feel very strongly about, you know, avoiding all these people. I, you know, it's not, uh, that's not really my, my approach, but, um, so I don't, I think it's good if you can go appear on Fox, I'm happy to see, uh, you be able to reach anybody. It's, I think when things the, the chance for JFK revelations, I think as much maybe a function of when things get worse in the country and it, it, it leads people to look at what happened. So and I think the decline of the position internationally is something that may happen in the, in coming years where it could be the time for some sort of truth and reconciliation. But and at that point, maybe it's good that people are out there planting seeds in the meantime, because uh even if nothing's going to come of it now i don't know what is that what do you agree with that or well something might come of it okay when when we get the last of the documents out all right and uh you know i i think there's a distinct possibility that such might be the case you know um i i wouldn't compare alex jones because what alex jones did at the sandy hook was i think that was beyond the pale. No, that that's that what I was, was referring to. That's that's what I was referring yeah. to. That's why I say I, I think it is good enough to say people should avoid Alex Jones at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not go on his show, although he does debate the JFK assassination, which does which does not help. Which does not help us, though. <laughs> you know, and he did that like a few weeks ago. Uh, so uh, you know, his case, I think, is more. Uh, you know, more off the table, all right? Um, but like I said earlier, I, I've i never believed that this was a left-right issue, you know? And I, I, I'm i kind of glad Tucker Carlson did what he did, all right? And hopefully he will pursue this later when the court case uh, comes up in March. That would be really neat. If like somebody like Bill Simpich or Larry Schnapp, you know, went on his show. Okay, I think Larry was already on his show. Jeff okay, Morley, Jeff on. Morley would be a logical choice for that. I don't yes, know. Yes, he would. Right, and I, I, he may do it. I, 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 he, it would be good if he did. Oh well, you know, me and Oliver were on Fox, their platform, before our film came out. They did a four-part special called JFK: The Conspiracy Continues. Okay, and so me and Oliver did the fourth part of that show. You know, and I have to say, I think they treated us fairly. All right. It, it, it wasn't a loaded show at all. I mean, Oliver didn't like it because they had people like Geraldo Rivera on. Okay. You know, but I thought as far as the mainstream goes, and I think Fox is part of the mainstream. It absolutely. Okay? Is. It's, if it's the highest rated show, you can't say it's right. not mainstream. On, on Whether that's a sad commentary yeah. or not is a separate question. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought they treated us fairly. Okay, I, I was not unhappy with the with the with the end result. Yeah. So, 
uh, this will be an interesting year then with that lawsuit and, and some stories that should be coming out about that in, in a couple months. And it's also the 60th anniversary of the case, which I think is going to be uh, the last major anniversary where a number of these prominent critics are, you know, are, are going to, I mean, every 10 years, there's less and less of them around, you know? So mm-hmm. do you, what's going on for the, for the 60th and how are people well, going to try to draw attention think, to this? I think Cyril Weft is going to have an event in Pittsburgh, like he usually does at these big anniversary things. Okay. And I also think Andrew Craig, okay, who is a Washington lawyer, is going to try and arrange an event in Washington, D.C., okay, which, and I think that one is he's going to try and arrange to American University, where JFK gave his uh, very illustrious uh, peace, what they call the peace speech, all right? There, inevitably, there will be some things going on in Dallas by other groups. But I think those are those are the two two or three things that we should be looking out for. I also believe that Libby Hondros's film, I think it's called Four Who Died Trying. I think that's going to be out this fall. And if you don't know anything about that, that's a film that's going to be about all four assassinations of the 60s. JFK, Malcolm X, King, and Bobby Kennedy. And I saw an extended trailer of that in Dallas last year. And it looks pretty good to me. Okay. It should, it sh- it should be pretty interesting. You know, I've, I've, there's never been a film that's taken on all four of those assassinations. In fact, not even close. There's never been a film like that. All right. So that, so that should be pretty interesting. And I think it's going to come out at the 60th anniversary. So those are some tips for the fall. Yeah, I think that I will do my best to make it to the uh, conference in Pittsburgh if I can. Um, I, I, I think I may reach out to uh, people who are organizing it um, and produce, you know, do something there for that. Because I think it's um, it, it should be a great event. And I think there will be a good amount of attention on it. Uh, for a number of reasons and we're going to try to do something maybe in philly on the day of i'm not sure how this is going to come together but there's been talk of that so i'm hoping that there's better coverage for the 60th than for the 50th um but... oh, well the 50th, the 50th was a disgrace okay now now disgrace i mean this the thing about the city really uh clamping down on uh on people and, and their ability to like move or, or commemorate mm-hmm. the event outside of, of their plans for it. Uh, that, that, way, that, that was a new that level. Was, that was planned a year in advance. We have the emails between the sixth floor museum and the mayor's office and the Bellow corporation, the Bellow corporation owns the newspapers, uh, the morning news in, in, in Dallas. All right. And they clearly were worried about having the researchers going ahead and holding events like they had before in Dealey Plaza. They didn't want that because they knew there would be so much media coming into the city and they did not want uh, them talking to people like us on an international stage. All right. And so they went ahead and they did what they did to their everlasting shame 
and they blocked off Dealey Plaza to be sure that that did not happen. And they had, you had to be cleared by Homeland Security to get a ticket to the main event, okay? Then they had police officers all over the plaza, you know, blocking off every entrance point into Dealey Plaza, all right? And, you know, many people said, if you had this much security on November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy still be alive, okay? You know, so, so that, that's how bad it was. I actually went to Dallas that year. And since we couldn't get into the plaza, we were at a coffee shop, okay, a block or two off. And, and by the way, when I say blocked off, I mean they had carpenters' horses, okay, blocking off the street. And then they would have a police car and about 10 policemen backing up that obstacle. They were even, and I, I didn't think I'd ever see this again, they even had policemen on horseback going up and down the streets, you know, uh, shades of Pony Express. But, you know, the, the, this, this is how determined they were that none of us would get on the air. It was, it was, it was a really, oh, and, 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 you know, I don't know, I, to this day, you know, I don't know how they, who's the guy who wrote the book about Truman, David? Uh, it's not Ambrose. Um, I don't think it's Stephen Ambrose. It's McCullough. It's Ambrose. McCullough, I think is McCullough, his name. McCullough, right. He was, the, now, Aaron, has he ever done anything on JFK? If he, ha- if he has, I'm sure it's horrible. But, but I don't. I but I haven't heard, heard of him. anything. No, but he's the guy they brought to Dealey Plaza to give the main speech about Kennedy. You know, which to me was, I mean, talk about senseless. You know, uh, but that's but he's how the, bad but he's a cover up. He's a cover up guy. He he uh, whitewashed right. Truman's. Right. He whitewashed right. Truman's. You know, crimes in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, for example. And so yeah. he's going to he's going to do the same for the state in this case. Now, you know, what the worst thing about that, the worst thing about that whole thing is that all the major networks were tuned into that event. All right. In other words, here I am in a coffee shop off Dealey Plaza being blocked off from entering the arena. But I'm watching what's happening on TV above me. You should have stayed okay, home. Because all the major networks are broadcasting this at the same time. So if anybody ever tells you that somehow the power elite is not concerned with the JFK case, you can tell them that's, well, there's a perfect example of how concerned they are. All right. Infuriated if I were you. I mean, you you should have stayed home, although I guess Jack Kennedy should have stayed home 50 years before that too. So it could have been worse, but man, that would be frustrating. Yeah, it was very bad. So I don't have any good segue for this. So I'm going to just throw this question out there and I want to go back to it. You said that there was a this you got this letter from someone who who spoke about being at a meeting of these XDCI guys. Yeah. And, and they talked the main subject they talked about was the Kennedy assassination or they or, or that was, was something that came up because this that's is actually really fascinating to me. That's what he was there for. Because he was involved 
in the cover-up about the JFK assassination. Okay, so that's what he was there for. Okay, they wanted to ask him some questions. All right. Okay, and and so that part he was only there for that part of the dialogue. Okay, but yeah, that was that was about the JFK assassination. Well, come on, you know, I think everybody realizes people in power, especially part of the Eastern establishment, which is what the CIA was in it, okay, that they would have a continuing uh, form of membership, okay, that would guard their interests, you know, as time went on, you know, and, and so I think it's only natural that uh that they would do something like that yeah they have to they they have to know yeah. what what future empl- what new employees and new administrations uh you know what new configurations in their own organization they have to know what to cover up so somebody has to know mm-hmm. the secrets i mean that's yes. that's a part of the regime it's not just secrets and then you disappear them forever like you actually have to control them and own this information and protect it which means well, people FBI have to know. Has, the FBI has a group like that also. Okay, that that uh, of veterans of of higher FBI officers, and they meet and discuss. Okay, and uh, and plan things. Okay, events about certain uh, about certain things that get in the news. All right. So yeah, so that would only be natural that uh, that the CIA would have a group like that. Calling it the Brotherhood was, I think, kind of interesting. <laughs> that's just that's weird. It doesn't surprise me, but it's like it's just, it's kind of disturbing because it has kind of like secret society connotations, and we yeah, just right, it, we don't need right. to make it any weirder than it already is. <laughs> At least they didn't call them like the Secret Brotherhood or the or something something weird that you, that you couldn't quite make sense of, like the Velvet Brotherhood or something, and then you'd be. Trying to figure out what the hell that's supposed to mean, but that's a it's a crazy story. Uh, is there anything at Kennedy's and King that you would like to uh, direct people to? Well, okay, at Kennedy's and King, uh, that's the website that I uh, publish and edit. Okay, it's uh, a compendium of current reviews of books that are out there, research articles, and news items. We have three new articles up there one about gus russo all right because he's been doing some articles about jfk case at the website spy talk which i did not like very much all right so i went ahead and did an article about gus good old gus all right and you know gus is the guy they trot out for every anniversary to do something for example he did one for pbs in 93 he did one with Peter Jennings in 2003. He did one with Tom Brokaw in 2013. All right. Then we have an article about there was a piece in an um, online magazine called The Conversation that was supposed to uh, counter the idea that Oswald was impersonated in Mexico City, which we've been just been talking about. And so I have a friend from uh, Canada. Jerry Simone, uh, who spent a lot of time countering this whole issue about a student named Oscar Contreras, who said that he met Oswald when Oswald was in Mexico City, except 
he didn't look like the Oswald that that was killed by Ruby in the Dallas jail. All right, so that's an interesting article. Then we have an interview with a podcaster and radio commentator from Quebec, okay, between me and Oliver, that uh, she came down from Canada to do a double interview with us too, all right? Uh, and um, that was in October. She just posted it on Facebook, and we have a link to that now. And I, I thought that turned out very well. And I, uh, in that interview, I decided to, you know, I was going to give Oliver the lead, you know. Uh, and I thought he came off very well in that interview. It's about an hour long, and it's on the website. So that's that's what Kennedy's and King is about. All right. Uh, if I can do another commercial, okay. The, the, the book to JFK Revisited, called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, is something that anybody who sees the film or both films, there's a two-hour and four-hour uh, four version, would be interested in because it has both screenplays, except they're in annotated form. They have notes. There's over 500 footnotes to the two screenplays. And then there's excerpts from interviews that were too long to put in to the film. See, we could have had easily a six-hour film, all right? And and you're in it, of course. Aaron Good is uh, one of the interviews that are excerpted in the book, all right? And, and so that is actually longer. That section is actually longer than the two screenplays. That's how good most of this stuff was, you know. Uh, so if you, and by the way, I should say, JFK Revisited is still in the top 10 on the Amazon list for documentaries. JFK Revisited came out in July. This is January. So it's going on six months, you know, and that documentary is still in the top 10. So whenever anybody tells you that there really isn't a heck of a lot of interest in the JFK case, you know, tell them to take a hike. Okay, there's still people buying this documentary, even though it's been out for six months, you know. <clears throat> right. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to have uh, it's going to be around. And I think with the 60th anniversary coming out, there'd be opportunities to um, use the use some of that to, uh, to market the, the film and hopefully encourage people to watch it. It could you say it could have been six hours? I, I from having listened to you over the years and thinking about and knowing basically what you didn't put in the film. I mean, you could have made a twenty-hour documentary. Uh, you don't even you don't even get into Sylvia Odio, for example, or Gary Underhill or Richard Case Miguel. I mean, there's just so much you could have done. Uh, but uh, it's so six out for six hours or for four hours. It's very you, there's a lot of a lot of power in that. So I I, I think that's a great accomplishment. Thank you, Aaron. Right. Well, thank you again for uh, joining us. It's always great to talk to you about all this material. And uh, I'll put links to the site and to the book in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Okay. Have a good day. Big thanks to Jim Diogenio for joining us again. Do check out his latest publication, the book version of JFK Revisited. It's the accompaniment to the Stone Diogenio documentary film, 
and it even includes a small excerpt from my interview for the film. Also, thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Mock Orange for providing the music. For the next episode, we are taking a step back from JFK and instead looking at the bizarre crime wave involving U.S. Special Forces at Fort Bragg. 